Welcome to the next episode of the Inside and Beyond podcast, and I'm your host, Natalia Fomichenko. Today with me is uh, an amazing guest who I'm super, super excited to have here, Tom Campbell. Tom is a nuclear physicist with several decades of experience developing missile systems with the U.S. Department of Defense and NASA. Tom is also a researcher of altered states of consciousness, whose journey began in the early 1970s when he worked closely with Bob Monroe, a famous consciousness explorer who has popularized the term out-of-body experience. Tom has been able to consolidate this research uh, to explain the reality construct in his book trilogy, My Big Toe, where toe stands for theory of everything. This theory unifies science and philosophy, physics and metaphysics, mind and matter, purpose and meaning, the normal and the paranormal. Tom, welcome to the show. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you here. Well, thank you, Natalie. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure being here. Hopefully, we'll have some conversation that will be interesting to your listeners. Of course. And the reason why I've particularly been looking forward to this conversation is because I'd like to really understand what our reality or life is all about. And this podcast has been a tool for me to inspire personal growth and inform a quest for life's meaning, my own and of those who listen to the podcast. And in doing so, I wanted to connect different ways of thinking, East and West, science and spirituality, as mm -hmm. I kind of intuitively felt that there is a connection, that these are oftentimes the two sides of the same coin. And there is a great desire in me to dissect mystical and real and understand where this line is. And oftentimes what I used to think as mystical, um, it becomes real, like um, it was with the discoveries in quantum physics, for instance. They were counterintuitive to the frame of thinking at the time, but now it's science. Now, I assume that right now we still haven't discovered everything and there's still a great thing, uh, a great deal of things to be discovered, which means that what seems mystical today may actually be real. And I've been reading your Big Toe trilogy and it has absolutely blown my mind by the leap it takes to connect normal and paranormal, but also by the leap it takes to explain uh, individual and personal growth. I know it's an extremely chunky topic, but would you be able to explain key concepts of your theory for those who aren't familiar with it at all? And then we can dig deeper into some of this. Okay. <clears throat> well, you had... You gave me such a nice introduction that you've already told them uh, some of what I would say in, in an introduction. So I will try to keep it short. It's essentially uh, this way. Uh, I have come up with a theory of everything, and I call it a big toe. Actually, the name of the book is My Big Toe. And mm -hmm. the reason it's a big toe is because Einstein started the acronym toe, theory of everything, trying to uh, combine quantum physics and relativity, because those two kind of have a philosophical difference with each other. You know, each one has uh, what they call a fact that is completely contrary to the other. So we know that neither quantum physics nor relativity are fundamental. In other words, they mm -hmm. don't describe everything. They both are going to have to be subsets of something bigger. Mm -hmm. And scientists have been looking for that something bigger now for about 100 years. It was the early 
you know, it was about 1922 uh, uh, when the double slit experiment and, and the kind of the, the birth of quantum physics took place. And mm-hmm. as you mentioned, that's something that, uh, uh, it, you know, that experiment produced a result that was contrary to materialism. Mm-hmm. Things didn't happen the way a material world, you know, should work. So the, the physicists then were very energized about, wow, we've got a whole new, you know, way of looking at reality. And they were so excited about how it was going to be really different from here on. But physicists could not figure out a good explanation of why it worked that way. Mm-hmm. So they... Contraintuitive yeah. to the uh, normal mechanical and relativity physics, right? Yes, it is. So, so they they couldn't find an explanation. They couldn't find a theory. They couldn't find a description that explained why it was like that. And that's still true a hundred years later. And what they're looking for, and if you talk to the old, some older physicists, you know, the guys in their sixties who have been around a long time. They will tell you that when we figure this out, it's going to be something so different, you know, so outlandish. Mm -hmm. And it's probably going to come from a graduate student or somebody who hasn't been, you know, um, indoctrinated yet to the, you know, to the beliefs we physicists Mm -hmm. have. And it will be, oh, gee, what, you know, a, a totally different viewpoint of the nature of reality. And from that reason, if this, if this new perception, or I should say this new perspective, and that's all it is, just a different perspective about how things work. If, if this new perspective wasn't really far out, it couldn't possibly be true. That's because true. scientists have been working on this now for 100 years and come up empty-handed to try to find something that fits their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And they can't. So it's got to be something totally outside their beliefs. And that's something that you've developed. Exactly that, that. That is that is what I've developed. So it's a big toe because it not only describes the nature of reality, but it completely describes the objective world, which is what quantum mechanics and relativity do. It's a better science. It's a more general science, a more general physics. You can put it that way. It explains how those two scientists or how those two pieces of science, quantum physics and relativity, you know, what's that overlying thing above them, you know, that integrates them both into, into uh, uh, something that describes our objective world, but it also completely describes the subjective world with a science, Mm -hmm. a logical approach to the subjective world. So that makes it a, a big toe, not just a little toe like Einstein was looking for. And I call it my big toe, not because I'm so proud of it, because I want to emphasize to people that if it's not your personal truth, then it's, you know, if I said that wrong, if it's not your personal experience, it can't possibly be your personal truth. Mm -hmm. And my big toe is just a way to start on building your own big toe. And each person has to come to an understanding of the nature of reality from their own experience. Because if it's not, if it's because you read it in a book or you heard about it, well, you can believe that or disbelieve it, but either one doesn't help your basic understanding. 
Yep. What we really truly understand has to come through our experience. Otherwise, it's a, it's a belief because disbelieving is just also a belief. Believing is a belief and belief is, is, um, not fundamentally yours. It's somebody else's. So it's my big toe in that I encourage everybody to go have the experiences of this larger reality of consciousness and to find out what the nature of reality is on their own. Okay. So that's the idea. So I was going to tell you now, what is the big idea? Yeah, okay, exactly. What is, exactly. Before what we is go the, to the experience, yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is, we will talk about. Yeah, what is the big idea here? Well, the big idea is that consciousness is fundamental. Okay, now scientists mostly believe that the physical world is fundamental. That's called materialism. Mm -hmm. Materialism is also uh, has to be um, deterministic. If you're a materialist, you have to also be a determinist. So this is just the opposite of that. This is saying that consciousness is fundamental and the physical world can be derived from consciousness. Now, that's a really big step. And most people say, that sounds impossible. How could you derive the physical world from consciousness? Mm -hmm. But you can. And here's the basic concept is that consciousness is fundamental. We, you and I and all the other people and dogs and cats and critters and bumblebees, anything that, that is conscious, and I'll give a definition of that a little later, uh, is a piece of this larger consciousness system, just a subset. Now, if you're in computer science, that would be uh, um, a virtual machine running within a mainframe or a, a subset of a larger system. The second mm -hmm. idea is that consciousness is an information system. That's what consciousness is. It's awareness, awareness mm -hmm. with a choice. And awareness is awareness of what? Well, information describes what awareness is aware of. So mm -hmm. consciousness is an information system. Now, that means we are not human beings. Primarily, we're consciousness. So what's this human being? What's this physical reality we're in? Well, that's a virtual reality, a computed reality. Wow. That is the basic idea. So our physical reality is computed on a computer, which is a subset of this consciousness system because consciousness is information system. And we are pieces of consciousness playing a human avatar. What does that mean? That means we as consciousness make all the choices for that avatar. The avatar does nothing, thinks nothing, you know, does nothing unless we make those choices. Mm -hmm. And we've been logged into that avatar since that avatar was birthed before that avatar was birthed actually and it's a piece of well this is a little harder to explain but it's a piece of a piece of consciousness that is really you know the the choice maker for that for that avatar mm -hmm. so that is the idea now if we look at that as the fundamental notion of reality that we are consciousness then we can derive physics. We can derive, uh, you know, a lot of philosophy, metaphysics. We can understand how paranormal things work. They're, they're normal. And we can mm -hmm. understand how we work as pieces of consciousness. You know, what's our purpose? What's our point? Why would the conscious system build a, a simulation? You know, what would be the point of that? 
mm-hmm. and all of these things can be answered uh, very logically and very rationally. So this is a science. It's it's uh, perfectly logical. It starts with two assumptions: that's that consciousness exists and evolution exists. And we start with the very simplest piece of consciousness. You might call that a consciousness cell. Just a simple piece of consciousness. And then we can see how it logically has to evolve into what we have now, this larger consciousness system, this big system of which we are part. We can see why it has to evolve virtual realities, why physics has to be the way, why you know the double slit experiment has to work the way it does, why mm-hmm. relativity has to work the way it does. So both, both of those basic sciences can be derived from first principles once you understand the nature of reality. So that's the key idea. We are consciousness. We're not humans. We're playing a human character, and we can play other characters. And we play this human character again and again and again, not the same human character, but different human characters, because what we're trying to do is lower the entropy of our consciousness because the whole system evolves by lowering its entropy. And we can get into that later if you wish. And what is entropy for the listeners? Entropy is a measure of disorder. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you have an information system and it's very high entropy, that means all the bits are disordered. A bit just being a name for the smallest unit of information. Mm -hmm. So all the bits are random then there is no information. But if you order some of those bits in particular ways, you create information. And that ordered, those ordered bits could be a symbol of something, could mean something, could stand for something, could be part of a language, could be a number, could be all sorts of things. And then you can work with those ordered bits. So the more that the system orders its bits, the lower its entropy is, the less Mm -hmm. it's just random. So consciousness evolves by creating more information. And that information has to be significant, has to have meaning, has to have mm-hmm. purpose to it. So we are pieces of that consciousness. So we are trying to lower the entropy of our piece of consciousness. That's and fits turns, the whole. Yeah, yeah, because we're a piece of the whole. So mm-hmm. as we lower our entropy, the whole system's entropy lowers because we're a piece of the whole. And it's a, it's a little longer, uh, logical argument, but it turns out that in a social system, lowering entropy among pieces of consciousness amounts to being caring, being kind, being helpful, sharing, mm-hmm. being compassionate, being sensitive. It's, it's a, that's the low entropy interaction between pieces of consciousness. And I can show this, you know, logically, you can show it mathematically, but that is, uh, so that boils down to what is our purpose here? Our purpose Mm. here is to grow up, to become love, to become caring, to get rid of our self-centeredness, to make life about other, not just about self. And Mm -hmm. that is the, that's the overall bigger purpose of why we're here. And why are we in this virtual reality? Because that gives us a context in which we have a lot of very meaningful choices. Mm -hmm. Choices, ethical choices, moral choices, choices uh, in how we interact with each other and with everything else that's here. So in this virtual reality, you have these meaningful 
significant choices because the reality has a rule set that defines how everything interacts with everything else. Mm-hmm. So choices are fundamental. Whereas let's say we were consciousness just communicating with each other in a great big chat room. Well, there wouldn't be so many meaningful choices there. You know, mm-hmm. you could tell the truth or not tell the truth. You could kind of do whatever you wanted. And, and the ability to grow up would be very limited because your experience would be so limited. So the system said, well, we need a more, uh, tight, a tighter context on interactions that mm-hmm. creates more interesting, more meaningful, more consequential interactions. And the way to do that is to create a virtual reality for our piece parts to play in and make these better decisions so that they can lower their entropy and learn how to get along with each other and care and work together. And that's what we're here for. So that's just everything in a real tight nutshell. And I know it sounds like more like philosophy and, and, you know, be good and love everybody and, and kumbaya and all of that, but it really is science. And there really is a logical path to take us, you know, to that conclusion. So it's not just a, a, something that sounds good. It actually is the fabric of reality is based upon us lowering our entropy and caring about each other. Thank you so much. That's super interesting. And there's a lot to unpack there. So if I may summarize it for our listeners, the very source of our creation is consciousness, which is the same as information system, big computer, if you want. And pieces of consciousness are what we are. And the bodies that we have are just avatars that we use specifically for this lifetime in order to live it. And during it, we can increase the order or lower the entropy of our consciousness. And the way we do it is basically make by making the right choices. And right choices obviously boil down to key values uh, and love uh, that people share with each other. Now, my... There are a few questions that arise from, from there. Um, so when you say that we are essentially using this physical materiality that we live in as virtual reality for, for these specific pieces of consciousness to learn. Now, the, the first question that arises is how what we think is real, what seems so real and, and has so many um, uh, rules. <clears throat> It can be virtual in a way, so it, it's, it's really hard to grasp. And then a second part that you mentioned was that essentially in order to lower the entropy, we need to somewhat fight our ego. And the question here is why do we have ego in the first place? Is it something that is a function of high entropy then in ourselves? Okay, so we'll we'll talk about those things. So let's talk about the ego first. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we have to understand um, the nature of consciousness a little bit. So let me say that consciousness is simply awareness with a choice. It's just awareness that has a choice. Now, if you have a choice, that has some logical consequences. 
if you really have a choice, then that means you have free will. Because if you don't have free will, then you don't really have a choice. You know, there is mm -hmm, no choice. Mm -hmm. uh, also, if you have a choice, that brings in time. Because it was now and after the choice and before the choice and after the next choice. So things change. Change defines time. You mm -hmm. can't have any change if you don't have time. You can't lower entropy. You can't evolve. You can't learn if there is no time because mm -hmm. all those have a before and after state. So that brings in time. So when we say that we, you know, that we have awareness, we're conscious and we have free will. Now we also then have, have time. Time, free will and consciousness are all logically necessary for each other. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't have one without the other two. They all go together and they are completely opposite and incompatible with the, you know, their opposite corner is materialism and determinism. Mm -hmm. So they're two opposite things. All right. So given that that's consciousness now, consciousness is awareness. And one of the things that you can have within this awareness is fear. Mm -hmm. Fear is the opposite of love. So love is in the positive direction. Fear is in the negative direction. Okay. So you can order things according to fear. Yeah. So fear is the source of ego. And fear is the source of most belief. So by fear, I'm not talking about that the bear is going to get you in the woods. I'm talking about fear as a as a being fear of not being good enough fear of being inadequate fear of not being lovable fear of people won't like you fear of not being appreciated and they go on and on and on yeah. these are fears and the ego tries to cover up and deny those fears it tries to make those fears seem less significant and less important it tries to whitewash those fears so they appear to go away so if let's say you have a fear of being inadequate, then you may have an ego that says, Oh, I'm adequate. I'm good. I'm, I, you know, I'm really smart. I know all sorts of things. And that would be part of your ego. You're feeling, you know, puffed up about yourself. We call that ego, mm -hmm. but it also could be just the opposite. If you fear that you're not good enough, instead of being arrogant, you might be the shrinking violet that shrinks back into the corner and is afraid to say anything to anybody because, you know, if you said something, it wouldn't be much. And, you know, mm -hmm. people might laugh at you or it just wouldn't be very adequate, whatever it is you say. So you can have opposite reactions to that, but they're both ego. Yep. And ego is a, is a device by which we use so that we don't have to look at the fear. We don't have to deal with the fear. We pretend mm. something in order to keep us from dealing with the fear. Now, belief is also created by fear. And that is if we, you know, one of the big fears we have are things we don't understand. The unknown frightens us. And we often then will come into beliefs. We'll make up a belief to make us think that we know something and feel better then. Oh, well, that's not an unknown. I know how that works. It's like this. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily true, but it's a belief and it makes us feel better. So 
Belief is often the same as ego in the sense that it makes us feel better. That's mm-hmm. part of that's part of its job because we have a belief that suits us, that satisfies the way we feel or the way we think. Then in our own mind, we turn that belief into a fact. So everybody who has beliefs thinks their beliefs are facts because that's kind of the trick. That's the idea to convince yourself that you know more and understand more than you really do. So there's lots of beliefs that people have, you know, that, uh, that are similar to the ego, but a little different. And mm-hmm. in, in an MBT, you know, we try to, you know, we say that you should believe nothing. You should always be skeptical, skeptical of everything. And that includes everything I tell you, everything you read, everything you hear. You should be skeptical of it, but you should also be open-minded. Because if you're, if you're not open-minded, that means you're trapped in a belief. You have a belief, therefore, this couldn't possibly be true because I have a belief to the contrary. And because a lot of people have a belief to the contrary, so it couldn't possibly be true. You see, that is being closed-minded and living your life through your ego and your beliefs. And that's mm-hmm. what gets us all in trouble. I see. So essentially, ego is what is constituted by beliefs and fear. And by definition, wrong beliefs and fear cannot help us evolve and lower our entropy, right? And that's how yeah. ego comes yeah. into yeah, place, that, right? That, that's right. But it's not bad, bad fear and bad ego. All ego and beliefs and fear are bad. So I would say that there, are, there probably are no good beliefs. There are probably some beliefs that are pretty neutral, you know, don't matter a whole lot one way or another. There's probably a lot of those around, but belief in general is just not a good idea. You shouldn't mm-hmm. believe things. You should, and you should not disbelieve things because disbelieving things is just another form of belief. You know, it's just the kind of the negative yeah. belief value rather than the positive belief value. But, uh, if you believe things, then your mind is closed to things being other than what you believe. Mm. If you believe things, then when new information comes in that's contrary to your beliefs, you either deny it or you blow it away. You pass it off. You don't, you refuse to look at it. Mm. So belief, I call is, is a trap. You know, you get into a belief, you're trapped. You cannot get new information. You're stuck. You're in a belief trap. And now the, the amount of information that you can use to, to grow or to become or to see bigger pictures or to enhance your understanding is limited. You can't understand but so much because you have beliefs. That's why you should always be skeptical of everything. And as we started out saying, if it's not your experience, it cannot be your truth. So you should want to personally you know, gather your information and your knowledge and not say, well, I can't really get that myself, so I'll just read about it and believe it. Well, if that's sometimes that's true. You can't experience everything. But the things that you can experience, instead of believing them or disbelieving them, you should just give them a probability of being true. Say, well, I think this is 90% likely to be true or 10% likely to be true and not throw it in that probability of one, it's true, or that probability of zero, it's false. So very, very few things in your life should be a one or a zero 
probability. Most of the things in your life should be somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. All right, some maybe 0.999 and you call those true, but it's better to not think of it that way. It's better to say they're just 0.999 and I may get some information that'll make that just 0.9 and then maybe 0.8. I'm always open to everything changing. So that's the mindset that you really need to have. If you're going to understand the My Big Toe Theory, you have to come at it with being open-minded, but being very skeptical and be willing to, to explore, being willing to find out for yourself. And there's lots of ways to do that. Yeah, and we will talk about these ways because I do understand that some of our listeners may wonder, okay, now we have this big toe theory that, you know, just brings in a very large concept. How do we ever, uh, how can we ever be able to experience it and understand it and, and prove whether it's true or not? So we are going to come to this. But before we do, and I do remember that I've asked you about the physical reality, how, how, that, how can it mean that it's virtual? But even before we cover that, because that's something that came up a lot um, before, um, you were talking about consciousness as awareness with a choice, which means that, you know, us human beings have it. And animals supposedly also have it. But now, does it mean that all animate objects have it? Plants, you know, fish, you know, any um, simpler forms of life? Or there is a line between where there is just awareness and where there is awareness with a choice? Yes, there is, a, there is such a line. Mm -hmm. uh, everything does not have, everything is not conscious, you know, rocks are not conscious. Uh, you know, the, the, the expression dead as a doornail, you know, doornails are not conscious, mm -hmm. um, things like that. But we, we wonder about trees, you know, are trees consciousness is a clam conscious. Mm -hmm. Well, the only way to find out is to test that animal or that thing and see whether it makes any free will choices. And it has to make a choice. Now, there's you can make choices without being free will. You can make choices just because it's programmed. Okay? Mm -hmm. Some choices are like that. And we call that stimulus and response. You know, you for for example, you have a, a sunflower and it follows the sun. As the sun moves, the sunflower actually moves its face mm -hmm. and looks at the sun. And You know, is that conscious because the sunflower consciously wants to keep its face toward the sun? Or is it the fact that it, the sun heats up one side of the stem and the other stem is, side of the stem is cooler and that makes a little torque in the stem which rotates it and follows the sun? Mm -hmm. Now then, that is hardwired. You know, it's not a thought. It's not a choice. It just happens because the machine is wired that way. A program, you know, your computer sitting on your desk right now is not conscious, mm -hmm. although it can do a lot of amazing things and it can find your misspelled words and it does a lot of things that make it seem very intelligent, but it's just programmed. It follows directions. And if you give it the exact same input in the exact same situation, you'll get the exact same answer every time because it's algorithmic. It's another way of saying hardwired. It's algorithmic. So things that are algorithmic 
are not conscious. They're just a machine that does what they do. Whether it's a biological machine or a mechanical machine, mm -hmm. doesn't make any difference. But, but then a question, sorry, the question comes to mind. Um, do we not have this element of being pre-programmed? Do not our, you know, um, cultural or family or mm -hmm. early childhood beliefs come to place? And also, um, a separate note that I think I've read somewhere that, um, there were studies on how people react to certain things. And essentially there were images of, you know, unsafe situations presented to them at high speed mm -hmm. and they, the amygdala, which is the area of the brain that reacts to danger, reacted mm -hmm. before people consciously knew what was presented. So people mm -hmm. were not aware mm -hmm. what was presented, but still they were making choices uh, inside. But does it mean that they have been making choices or it's just they are pre-programmed to make them? Okay. Mm -hmm. Those are two good questions. First of all, to be uh, to have free will... Uh, does not mean that you don't have any controls on you. Free will does not mean I can do anything I want anytime I want. And obviously there is no free will because otherwise I'd be rich and famous and good looking too, you know, because I choose all those things. Well, it doesn't mean that you have a genie with, you know, infinite wishes. That's not free will. Free will, free will is defined as you have a thing I call the decision space. That's all the, decisions that you might make. And your decision space is only as large as what the, about the decisions you know, you're aware of. Let's say there's a, you know, you have a problem and you have an awareness that there are 10 paths that you could take toward solving this problem. Now, there may really be 50 different ways to solve that problem, but you're only aware of 10 of them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, those 10 possibilities that you could choose, that constitutes your decision space. Because you could choose any one of those 10 that you wish to. So your decision space is 10 in that case. Now, anything that has a finite decision space, in other words, if it can make even a choice, then it has consciousness. But if it's only, you know, and I mean a choice between things, so that's mm -hmm. an A or a B, then you're conscious if you can pick between two, two things. So mm -hmm. that's a choice. Then you are conscious but you may be an extremely dim consciousness. All consciousness isn't, you know, human. There's lots of levels of consciousness, lots of levels of capability and capacity. So, you know, a dog is conscious. It can mm -hmm. make choices, but its decision space is very small compared to a human. A human has a whole lot more choices in their decision space. Now you take a dolphin. It has a brain that's bigger than ours. It has frontal lobes where all that complex thinking bigger than ours. But the number of choices that it can make are limited, more limited than ours because of the environment it lives in and the kind of animal it is. It doesn't happen to have these opposable thumbs that can reach out there and build all the things that we can build. Well, an, abil an ability to choose to build or not to build, those are more choices. Uh, so... That's decision space. Mm -hmm. A finite decision space is a requirement for consciousness. So let's look at a clam. Okay. And we see a clam and it sticks its foot out. And that's how it pushes itself around as it sticks that foot out. Now, if you touch that clam's foot, you reach in and just touch that foot, that clam will jerk that foot into the shell. And why does it do that? 
Does it do that because it's conscious and says, oh, something just bothered my foot. I better pull it in for safety. Or is that just hardwired? When you touch a clam's foot, the foot always comes in. Or is Mm -hmm. it a choice? Now, biologists would have to take a clam and do some research with it to decide whether that was hardwired or whether that clam could make a choice to leave that foot out there if it wanted to. Could you train a clam such that you could touch its foot? But now even hardwired things can learn, like your computer can learn to help you spell words better. You know, it can, it can learn what books you prefer and then send you, you know, things about those books. So the clam may just have an adaptable hardwiring system that could change based on change in its environment. So it's hard to tell at a certain level. But yes, somewhere there is this line between what might be just aware, but not conscious. Trees mm-hmm. are on that line somewhere. We know that trees might be aware. We don't know for sure, but they do a lot of fancy work under the ground with between their roots, how they communicate with each other. Now, is all that algorithmic and hardwired or is some of that intentional? We don't know for sure. Some people think it's intentional. Some people aren't so sure. So we'll work on that. Because it's possible to have awareness, just have an awareness, but no choices. So is a tree like that? Does it have some fundamental awareness, but it really doesn't have any choices? That's a possibility. But we would say it is not conscious unless it has at least some choices. Mm -hmm. So if it decides that it can send nutrients over to the other little seedling that's having a problem, if it decides to do that with an intention, it's conscious. If it just does that because it's hardwired, it is not conscious. I see. But then if we look into the evolution line, at some point there were no life forms that had awareness with the choice, right? So it started appearing whenever the animal kingdom started developing, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. how did it just appear out of nothing? And if we come back to this physical reality simulation, Initially, it was simulated without awareness with a choice. And then at some point of evolution, the awareness with the choice or consciousness has been deployed to the life forms somehow. Okay. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I'd like to go back to the other thing you mentioned about the person who knew that yeah. some kind of terrible picture was going to come up before the picture actually came up because mm-hmm. they physiologically started to react to that terrible picture before mm-hmm. the computer even picked that picture to mm-hmm. come up. So it's not only before the picture was shown, but before the computer actually made the selection of what picture to show. Oh, really? Yes. So the you have a computer that will randomly pick a picture, and the person actually reacts to the picture that's going to be picked before it's even picked by the computer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So... That's, you know, you mentioned that, and I don't want to just leave that alone because somebody will say, oh, well, he skipped over that question and didn't answer it. (laughs) There are answers to that, but uh, Mm -hmm. I know there's so many places we can go. It's kind of hard. No, no, no. Let's let's cover this. Let's cover this before we uh, jump to the next thing. Um, Yes. So we can react to the stimulus before we are aware. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with the consciousness in this. In this, no, in, uh, in, in, stage. This, 
Yeah, in this case, it's not our consciousness that is doing that, but it is, it's the larger conscious system that's running this virtual reality. Okay. Mm -hmm. So think of it this way is we have a piece of this larger conscious system configures itself as a computer, and that computer is going to compute our virtual reality. Now we are pieces of consciousness. We get a data stream. We get that data and we look at it and we interpret it as our reality. You know, this is just the way all of us would be if we were playing a computer game, right? You're sitting in your chair, you've got your mouse, you're looking at your computer. The, the server sends you data and you look at that data. At, you get that data as, as what, a couple of million pixels of light on a screen and you interpret those couple of million pixels as rivers and rocks and people and mm -hmm. things and, and uh, that sort of thing. So you get data as consciousness, you interpret it as this reality and interact. And the data you get describes not only your environment, but the other people in your environment and how you interact. It's a multiplayer game. Okay. Now, consciousness operates very, very quickly. It's, it works at a much faster speed. You know, the speed of thought is a lot faster than the speed here in the physical world. Mm -hmm, we can we can think things much quicker than we can do things because our bodies are slow. They're electromechanical, you know, devices that use levers and and you know tendons and muscles and things to move stuff around. It's a really slow system. So in order for us to be able to react more quickly to things, the system has to get our slow biomechanical body going in the right direction before we actually have to react. Otherwise, our reaction times would be so slow that we'd be constantly, you know, it's like a, the old video games where everything was so coarse that, uh, you know, motion was jerky and, and you know, it was, you could tell that, and, you know, yeah, there yeah. were lag times, you know, you'd do something, but it would be a little while before that actually would happen yeah. on the screen. And well, that's the way our virtuality would be if the system didn't help reduce the video lag. That's mm -hmm. the lag between the, the speed of mind, if you will, the speed of consciousness, the way things happen and the speed of these old clunky electromechanical bodies that we have in this virtual reality. Okay, now they are electromechanical because this is not a programmed reality. This is a, an evolved reality. We can talk about that. Our virtual reality is not a programmed one. It's a, in, an evolved one from a rule set and a set of initial conditions. Mm. So that's, you know, and the, the rule set is what we call science. Scientists try to dig out the rules of the rule set that define our, our virtual reality. So anyway, if a person... If a, if a picture is coming up and it's going to be scary and the person is going to react to it and it's going to be a reaction that isn't delayed. In other words, here's a scary picture. Person stares, person stares. Then the person goes, ah, mm -hmm. you know, that's a delayed reaction. But as soon as it comes on, the person reacts. Well, that makes it like real time. So because we have this slow electromechanical body, the system actually starts it prepared to get ready to act at the very small level. If you look at tiny little voltages down inside the muscles, tiny little things going on, then you will see they start 
before the computer even picks a scary picture. Oh, wow. And the reason for that is, is that remember that computer is a virtual computer. It's programmed. It's, it's part of the illusion. It's just information as well. That computer has randomly picking pictures, but it's not random. It's pseudo random. The system is making that up as well. This is a virtual reality. Mm. So the system knows exactly what's coming up next and it gets the person prepared. It knows what the next random number is going to be, what picture's coming up, and it's got to get that slow electromechanical system up and moving so that when a picture pops up, the person will react to it mm. rather than the picture comes up and a second later, the person reacts to it. Otherwise, we'd never be able to f- drive cars or fly jet aircraft or do a whole lot of other things that require quick reaction times. We would be a, a virtual reality game just like the old games where there was always this video lag going on between, you know, what happens and the reaction to what happens would have a lag time in it. So mm-hmm. that's why that works that way. It's not proof that there is no free will, that, uh, you know, everything is, is programmed at all. It's just a, a show that the larger consciousness system has made a virtual reality that is ir- as realistic as possible. Because a good virtual reality is one that you can't tell that it's a virtual reality. So the <laughs> system true. the system wants to make it like that because, you know, we're here. We're interacting. We're making choices and things. And it needs to be credible and believable. And we need to be absorbed in it. It's definitely very refreshing to, to realize you actually live in a simulation. <laughs> Um, let's come back to the evolution point. So at which point this consciousness has been deployed to the earth, to, to the specific life forms that have the ability to make, uh, to make choices? Okay. So in order to answer that, we have to look at where does this, where does this reality come from? You know, how, mm-hmm. where did the virtual, how did the virtual reality get started and, and what, what is it? Well, mm-hmm. the system needed a context in which to make more consequential choices. So what it did is it came up with a set of initial conditions and a rule set of how those conditions could change according to the rules. And then it pushes the run button and it lets those initial conditions change as, you know, as time goes on, everything changes. Well, think of those initial conditions as this little ball of plasma, high energy, high temperature. It's all in a tiny little space and the run buttons hit And it starts to expand because the rule set has that as part of the rules that it will expand, you know, and it has gravity and it cools and you make the universe and you've heard of the Big Bang. And that's how the Big Bang Mm -hmm. is supposedly to make this universe. But all that's done in a computer. It's a simulated Big Bang. And then it evolves. Okay, so you end up with a sun like ours, with a planet like ours. And then you end up with the with the right amino acids next to whatever else and Bing, you get a cell, and then these cells start to grow, and you start with single cells like bacteria. They find that they can lower entropy by cooperating, mm-hmm. and they become multi-celled things. And the multi-celled things grow, and they become things like jellyfish, and then they start to have specialization of cells so mm-hmm. that you got the, you know, the, the locomotion part, the defense part, the digestion part, the, the sensor part, and all of those work together. Now you have a lot of cooperating cells. 
And the more you get cooperation between the cells, the lower the entropy gets and things evolve. And eventually you end up with fish and people and, you know, toads and lizards and so on and mammals. And here, and here we are. So we evolve according to a rule set. Mm. Like I say, we call that rule set science. Science digs out the rules. That's what we try to do. Try to understand the rule set of this virtual reality. So this virtual reality just is, and it developed from the basics, from the big bang, if you will, the big digital bang. Okay, now you talk about, well, where did the consciousness come in? Consciousness is what the larger system is. So when these, when this computer simulation finally developed things that had the ability to make choices, well, in the beginning, the, the system itself, the, the server for the virtual reality played all the characters. Mm-hmm. All the characters were being played by consciousness. So now we got, you know, the jellyfish, which makes a few decisions, not a whole lot. And then we get fish who make a lot of decisions. And then we get frogs and so on up in mammals. And the consciousness is making all the choices. And it's making a lot of them maybe randomly, but some not depending on what they're doing. So the system is just evolving within this computer. Eventually it gets to the point that there are things making choices that would be valuable for a consciousness to make. In other words, they're choices of of consequence, choices that make a difference. So Mm -hmm. then a consciousness logs on and makes those choices. So the system says, okay, I'm not going to make choices for this thing anymore. You, individuated unit of consciousness, you little piece of me, you make the choices for that thing. Okay, so now you have the system sends that consciousness a data stream. The consciousness gets the data stream that defines the reality. The system makes the choices, tells the computer, hey, I made these choices, I made these changes. The system incorporates those changes, computes the effect of those changes, what that means to the other things, and sends back the to the player what you know player what one. the changes are. Yeah, yeah, player one, right? Sends back to the player what's going on now. So then that player starts making it. So as the things got to a point that they could make choices and had decision space, then the system could start putting pieces of consciousness Mm -hmm. to make the choices within that decision space. Mm -hmm. So that's how our consciousness developed here is that as we evolved to the point where decision spaces were finite, then consciousness was logged into those things to make those mm-hmm. choices. That makes sense. That makes okay. sense. Thank you. Uh, wow. This is a lot to take, but... Um, oh, it, we've just some, barely scratched the surface. I know, I know. <laughs> we will continue our conversation with Tom Campbell in the next episode. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. Thank you.